Welcome to Heartside Chats. This is Dr. Chelsea Wakefield in conversation with my friend, Lisa Stutzman-Graves. And we are talking about all things related to life, love, and the pursuit of consciousness. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy. Welcome to Heartside Chats. I'm Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. And I'm Lisa Stutzman-Graves. And Lisa and I have been friends for many years. And recently we were having a number of conversations and we said we should really be taping these because they were so rich about areas of life having to do with love and how to live more deeply and things that were inspiring us. And so Lisa encouraged me to relaunch a podcast after the love in the time of COVID that I did last year. And so here we are. Welcome, Lisa. Yeah, thank you. This is exciting. I've been a big follower of yours since, gosh, it's been a minute and went to one of your conferences in Asheville, North Carolina, The Luminous Woman. And I really got so much out of that. And your um, third book, Labyrinth of Love, just speaks to me so much. And now that I'm newly married after being single for 25 years, it really speaks to me. So I'm grateful for you sending this out to the world. Yes, and it's so interesting because I'm heading into my 32nd year of marriage and you're a newlywed. And so we're doing a little bit of of comparing notes and I'm watching you go through the stages of love and you're watching yourself go through the stages of love. And so one of the things we decided to do to begin the podcast, which we will expand beyond my book, but we decided just to talk a little bit about the labyrinth of love for a while. So uh, let's head into that. What, What do you want to talk about in the book? Well, you know, Chelsea, the first chapter was just so many takeaways for me. I thought what I would do, if it's okay with you, is read a paragraph or two that really struck me, and maybe we could talk about it from that perspective. Would that be helpful? Sure. Um, In chapter one, and I, I, you know, guess because I've only been married two years, uh, I love this part. There is nothing more compelling than the experience of falling in love. We don't recognize ourselves when we fall in love. We are beside ourselves, head over heels, swept away by implausible feelings. We forget responsibilities that suddenly seem unimportant. We try to concentrate, but keep our minds wandering back to thoughts of this enchanting person, recent experiences, and anticipation of future delights. In love, we become more generous, kind, accommodating, even sacrificial in a desire to keep and please the object of our affection. People in love go to great lengths and expense just to spend moments of time together. I just love that. And I remember, I almost thought I was losing my mind because I was just so like breathing oxygen when I met this person that became my husband after 25 years. Um, And I remember I went to see a therapist because I was like, am I losing my mind? I mean, is this normal? Yes, it's actually for people that experience of falling in love. It, it's quite wonderful. And people who've never experienced that really long for it. There's a sadness in their lives because they've never had that exhilarating experience. Uh, Dorothy Tenov, she calls it limerence. Yeah. And it really is. Uh, we, we have drunk the love potion and we're intoxicated on neurochemicals. So when you say, have I lost my mind? In a way, we have lost our minds because our brains are actually awash in dopamine and the feel-good neurochemical. And so we, we kind of are um, off our kilter. 
And uh, it's a, it, what's interesting about that is most people will either get married or commit their lives or move in together during that period of time. And, and then the fall off of that lofty height is so difficult for most people in terms of, you know, we, we can't live there forever. We would never get anything done. Right. But we have to get grounded again. But that, that descent into um, more quiet love, long-term love with the relationship actually really, really uh, begins to take root is very hard for some people. Yeah. And I remember the therapist I went to, he said, you know, you're Twitter baited. I said, Twitter baited? What is Twitter baited? And he said, you know that Disney character with the deer and the doe eyes that would look at the other deer and just look at it lovingly? I said, well, yeah, I haven't thought about that in years since I was a little girl. He said, you're Twitter baited. That's what they called it, Twitter baited. Oh, that's so funny. And I said, oh, okay, I get this. Yes, yes. And you know what? One of the things that I try to get couples who've been together a long time to to do is actually spend some time gazing into each other's eyes. Mm. Because it's something that young lovers do. They'll just they won't even say anything. They just love to look at each other and take each other in. And it's something that we stop doing if we've been married a long time. But it can really actually soften the connection between two people. Uh even if they are just sitting at a dinner table and just take some time to just look into each other's eyes and take each other in and realize this is this is my beloved that I've been with all this time and we've been through so many things. I love that. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because now that we've been married a couple years, it's like I'm longing for that time when we look into these eyes again. And, and a lot of times when my husband gets home, you know, it's been a long day. I work from home and I just want to sit and look at him and he... He's doing things. He's answering emails, and and, and I, we have really had to work on. Okay, I need to look at you. I need your eyes without a device, and I need like 30, 40 minutes. And so we've had to really be intentional about looking at each other. He doesn't need it as much as I do, but I, he has magnificent eyes, so I have to look at him and like read his eyes and go, oh, okay, I remember this feeling. You're talking about being intentional, and that's one of the things that's so important in a relationship because. Oftentimes people, they think of it as, oh, I found my person. Um, I got a relationship. I've achieved this landmark. And anytime we get a relationship and then we just let it drift, it will inevitably wind up on the rocks because we've stopped nourishing it with our love and intention. So these, what you're talking about is a principle and a practice that I'm always trying to teach people that you've got to do something to nourish the we. It's not just a you and a me, it's a we. That relationship is a third entity. I love that, Chelsea. And and speaking of that, I, I never had really heard that there's a he and a she and a we. And when you're in a relationship, it's a we. And just recently, because I read your book, we got into an altercation on a walking path of all things. And we, we were both not handling it well. And we're pretty highly evolved, uh, been to a lot of therapy, been to a lot of meditation class people. And we were like not handling it well on a walking public park. And uh, I said, honey, we are better than this. We are we. We know how to handle conflict. And I have to say, it took us probably mm, a couple hours. I think he was going to take an Uber home. (laughs) 
Well, I think that's pretty good. A couple hours. I, you know, I get couples that I work with who've been in that state for a long, many years, um, where they haven't been able to re-engage and, and repair that breach in the bond. Um, well, that's good. I don't hear. think that there's any relationship where we don't get hooked or entangled occasionally. Um, my husband and I, we have worked through a lot of things, but occasionally we get entangled. And one of the things that we've learned to do is to take a little time to kind of get out of the tangle, sort of go to our separate corners. It's something that I talk a lot about in the book, which is to begin within. And, you know, so the question is, what's going on with me? We have to ask ourselves, what, why am I so upset? What is really going on with this? And then as soon as we get some insights, and we've also calmed down, because part of what happens when we're in a tangle like that is we've got a lot of adrenaline pumping. And when that adrenaline starts pumping and you feel like it's imperative that you <laughs> it's, that you make the other person see it your way or that you're, you know, you've got to win to survive. Yeah. And so just getting the adrenaline down and, and getting a little bit more centered and then making good repairs. It's such an important part of the relationship is coming back together and saying, this is what I think was going on with me. Um, I've got a set of stories I can tell about my own ridiculous behavior when I was triggered and upset and, you know, spending some time reflecting on it. And then Tom and I getting back together. It seems like we usually end up talking in the kitchen over coffee the next morning mm-hmm. and figuring out, like, what, what happened with us? Where, what what, what were we caught in the middle of? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I, uh, that was really bizarre. Uh, I, I'm, and it's, I tell you, when you when you go back when you get real conscious about what you need and and at the same time building this relationship it is very to me a space of being very vulnerable when you go back and say okay this is where i was this is what triggered me and you know some people are not you know like sometimes i have to drag that out of my husband okay so what what triggered you? And and and, he, and I said, come on, because he'll just apologize. And I'm like, no, this is not about just apologizing. You know, we, it may be me. I mean, we need to talk this through. So we've really opened. Yeah, up. and what's what's interesting about that idea of talking it through? I, a lot of men are not raised to engage in emotional conversations. It's one of the strengths that a lot of women have because we're more accustomed to talking about feelings. The only reason that it's it's worth revisiting something is to figure out how each of us personally got triggered. And then I like to call it exit ramps. If it's a repetitive tangle, we need to figure out how can we find an exit ramp off this conflict highway so that we don't have to repeat this argument over and over again. Every couple has a set of disagreements or arguments or upsets that is their top 10, (laughs) their playlist uh, that they get caught in. We all have our little unique repetitive things that bother us. And so figuring out how we can be different in those situations, how we can actually show up differently or view it differently or do something that helps the other person de-escalate, you know, we can work together. I like to think of these kinds of things as um, that we're caught in a dynamic. And if we move the dynamic out away from the relationship, the two of us can be partners together, friends, partners, figuring out how to dismantle this dynamic we're caught in, rather than viewing the partner as the enemy, 
Right. The dynamic becomes the enemy. Right. That's what I meant when we were on that path when I said, you know, we are much bigger and better than this. You know, we are we. Yeah. We've got to take a... In fact, we both agreed here recently that one of us needs to back down because we're both so strong and probably stubborn that both of us want to win. Yes. And when you get two strong personalities like that, it can get pretty intense. So it'll be interesting to see who backs down when, and it'll always be the more conscious person. Oh. And it's not that you're oh, that backing down and the other person's <laughs> winning, because sometimes it can feel like that. It's, yeah. it's more like, I'm about to be wise. I'm about to exit this and calm down so that we can actually figure out what's really going on. Sometimes I say to people that when, when you're in a big fight, um, there are no adults in the room. Mm. It's like our, our nested inner children are really going at it. Those places in us where we're vulnerable or we are remembering some area that we didn't get our needs met and we had hoped that this person, this ideal person, would be the one to finally relate to us the way we always long to be related to and they're not doing it. And we get so upset over those kinds of things. But it's our nested inner little kids that are really upset. Well, and I think because we met each other in a... Buddhist meditation retreat, uh, well, class that we went to for six weeks. And finally, at the end of five weeks, I had no idea he was even interested in me. He kind of worked up the courage to come talk to me and ask me if I'd had supper. And uh, so I almost didn't go because I had a lot of work to do that night. And I thought, well, let's go have dinner with the man. And of course, I'm glad I did. But so when we get into that conflict, I think we are much more evolved than this. But, you know, I guess nobody's immune to it. Nobody's immune to it. And the thing about the meditation self or our, our spiritual self is that when we're in that more, I'll call it elevated, enlightened state, where we've got more insight, we've got more capacity to witness, we're a little bit more, you know, centered and calm and... Uh, not so driven by our egoic needs. That's a self in us. It's it's like a part of our psyche, but we don't live there 24 hours a day. And that's what's so mystifying sometimes when, when we, myself, everybody finds themselves behaving in this way where you think, I don't even like this person I've become. Um, so we've sort of, again, if we think about being like Russian nesting dolls, where we're every age we've ever been and we have every memory we've ever had, uh, we can descend into all sorts of younger age states. And then we're fighting from that place. We're not in our spiritual selves. We're not in our enlightened, mature, uh, good communication selves. Uh, we, we don't live there 24 hours a day. You know, it's interesting you say that because the first thing that popped to my mind when you're talking about that is that both of us are taking care of our aging parents and neither one of them are doing well. They're suffering terribly and they're both ready to pass. And I have found when I go take care of my mom that I get into this inner child wounding thing when I get home. I'm just I guess it's dealing with her and all of that. And then when we go see his dad, he kind of gets in that space too. So uh, I have to be 
I think I'm noticing it more than him. I have to be real intentional about, okay, my mother's dying and I need to be gentle with myself and not rely on him so much. But I also want to be there for him. And I can ask him and I can say, you know, this is really bothering me about my mom. I'm upset about this. And he's, of course, he's wonderful and will jump in there. And sometimes he intentionally will ask me things. But it's just definitely a whole nother dynamic when you're dealing with dying people in your life. That is so true. And it's, you're also naming something that is part of that inner self system that I think about so often. So you're talking about the caregiving daughter and the caregiving son. And that ego state, that place that we go when we're caring for aging parents is a very different place again from our healthy adults or our spiritual self or a loving partner, or the mother to our own children, or a professional self. That is a very vulnerable place, and it is packed with all sorts of emotional material, including how difficult it is to watch a parent who was once the person who took care of us, and now we're caring for them, and they're so vulnerable. And in most parent-child lives, there are unresolved hurts and things that we carry that have always bothered us, but we haven't quite known how to work it through or fix it. And sometimes we don't have parents who are in any kind of uh, state or place of uh, awareness to be able to even have those conversations. Yeah. Um, both of my parents are gone, as are mm-hmm. my husband's. Yeah. And But I do remember, wow, Tom's mom, she actually, she died in our home. Yeah. We had a hospice team. And uh, he, that was really a profound time, a passage time for us and very, very difficult for, for him. And I had to be extremely sensitive and kind of wait out the, greedy, the grieving period with him mm-hmm. because he was not able to meet me or respond for a while because he was in his own process of loss oh. and everything that his mother had meant to him. She was very important to him. You know, talking about grieving makes me think, Uh, about a relationship again. So when you're in a relationship, let's just say like me, you've been married a couple of years. Could you, since you're not in that Twitter-baited, fun, love stage, could it be possible that you would kind of grieve the way it used to be? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I, I think that one of the most difficult parts of a relationship is actually moving into that second stage of the, of the long relationship. It really is when the real relationship begins, you begin to build experiences together and stuff that was lying kind of like a lake bed, you know, it's (laughs) like a quiet lake bed. And then you start wandering out into the lake bed and the silt starts to stir up. There's stuff that stirs up when you're in a relationship with someone where that person starts to really matter and you're dependent on them. And you have all these hopes and dreams, as well as these assumptions that you didn't even know you had. (laughs) So that grieving period is often where couples get into all sorts of trouble together. They start to try to push back for the for the early relationship rather than moving forward into a deepening relationship of greater understanding and the co-creation of the we who are we going to be together what do we want to experience how are we you know how am i personally wanting to show up in this relationship how are you wanting to show up 
And what are we going to create together? The life that we're going to create together. So that's that's the work of relationship. And having now been with my husband for 32 years and having gone through all sorts of stuff together, um, having a child together, dealing with extended families, um, job changes, uh, just lots and lots of stuff, illnesses, uh, my husband's cancer, things like that, all sorts of stuff that we've lived through together and gotten to the other side of it. And the there is a richness that people who, when they hit the rough stuff, they just make a U-turn out of the relationship. There's a richness in a couple who has really tried to work through things together and who really cares for each other that grows and deepens over time. And it's something that can't be known by people who are continually just hitting rough spots and saying, ah, this is too hard, I'm out of it. So the personal work that we need to do to actually navigate those rough passages is really where the relationship deepens. And I will say that in the middle of my marriage, I was so unhappy. Mm. This was after Tom's mom died and and, uh, he went into a deep depression for a while and he just wasn't available. And we had a a four-year-old child, and I thought to myself, I don't know if I can wait. I don't know if I can stay here. The relationship wasn't good enough to stay. It wasn't bad enough to leave, and it drifted for a long time. And I was really, really lonely. Mm-hmm. But the the turnaround came when I made a developmental leap. I grew up. I grew up. I developed, and as I grew up and developed, um, and started dropping some of my resentments about who he was that I thought he, you know, he wasn't the person I thought he would be. Then something softened in our relationship and he started to re-engage and it really began to heal our relationship. So even though I made the growth leap first, he followed. And I sure am glad I stayed because it's been worth it now. So deeply worth it. But no, I have not been happy in my marriage for every year of my life. Absolutely not. Well, you saying that, just gives me inspiration, and I'm just thrilled to hear that. But I, I, I will say, and I wanted to share this, that my parents were married over 50 years. Um, they had one of the, the just wonderful, deep love relationships. Everybody knew that. They were high school sweethearts. And my mother was very honest with me about relationships, probably much more than many women, um, talking about the ebb and flow and, and a lot of things, and, and they were very free with their love and their affection. And, you know, we used to get tickled, my brother and I, because my dad traveled a lot. And when he got home, we had a boat and they would go out in the boat and they were telling us they were going fishing, but they weren't really going fishing. And then <laughs> the seats in the boat would be down. And, you know, they had a very active love life. And uh, I'm glad I had that because, you know, there's enough sadness and other ways to look at a relationship, but I had a good role model in that sense. Um, You were so fortunate because most people don't have that kind of a role model. I know. I don't have that kind of role model. My parents were married for about 29 years and then they blew apart because they did not get the help they needed. And it's one of the reasons that I've devoted my life to this, not only in my own marital struggles and really learning beginning to really 
learn what it takes to go the distance with somebody. But really thinking a lot about my parents' relationship and, and how sad it was yeah. that after 29 years of partnership, where they really were good, pretty good partners, um, my father had some difficulties and he couldn't make his way out of them and he didn't get good help. Yeah. So a lot of people don't have good role models and we don't get a lot of help about how to not only establish and pick a partner well, but how you really navigate the, the ebbs and flows and the ins and outs of relationship. How do you sustain the bond? How do you keep the love alive? That's what I love about your book, because, you know, it was probably divine timing that we got reconnected. But it's just such a wonderful roadmap to how to have an intentional, soulful relationship. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you've taken the time to record all that to help people, because I know that I have a grown son that's 28, getting ready to be married. And I went to visit them at, during the holidays, and they have a wonderful relationship. They've been together seven years, and they're about to be married. But there's just this emotional maturity that you, you, you see things going on. You're like, oh, that was me when I was 28. I can't really say anything. I can't really help them. But I bought them all your book. I bought, I bought their, your book for my son and his fiance and then for their neighbors because I was like, oh, I can't say anything, but I can certainly lead them in the right direction. So if you'll read this and get an insight. And I will say his fiance has started it and uh, we'll hopefully we'll have dialogue. I just, you know, I hate for people, I, I'm sure you feel like this, but you hate for them to go through some of the struggles you did. When there's I a do clear, hate that. clear way to not go around that. It's not this, the struggle and the anguish is not mandatory. If, you know, when you hit that place where you're trying to get it to go back to the early limerent phase where everything was sparkly and you were lofted high on the mountain of love, um, that is the time when people start engaging in what I call misbegotten solutions. Oh. They start power struggling and they start criticizing and complaining and uh, they do all sorts of things that only make matters worse. Mm. Well, I found another little chapter that I wanted to read. I mean, a paragraph that I wanted to read you. Could I do that now? Sure. Um, you kind of touched on this. I love this, and I think this is so true. And before I read this to you, I have a couple of friends that are widows at young ages. One of them in particular is trying to feed herself that emptiness by getting online and dating and trying to meet somebody else and trying to reestablish this relationship she had. And, and, and I, I kind of walk alongside her and I try not to say too, too much because she just is determined to have a relationship. But I thought this was so cool what she said in here about the couples therapist and romantic philosopher Esther Perel tells us that we expect more from a relationship today than any other time in history. We ask one person to be what an entire village used to provide, best friend, passionate lover, trusted, confident, and so on. In reference to marriage, she commits, contained within the small circle of the wedding band are vastly contrary ideals. We want our chosen one to offer stability, safety, predictability, and dependability. And then we want that very same person to supply awe, mystery, adventure, and risk. Wow. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. And all of that stuff, I think, is 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 fed by romantic comedies. And um, thank goodness in the romantic comedies that we have on television, the couples are at least stumbling around having difficulties and then resolving it. Um, but there's something archetypal about that longing for this perfect person. Um, 
And we do overburden relationships nowadays. It's one of the reasons why relationships so often fail. People go into dating and they have this big checklist of what the partner needs to be. And it's like we are auditioning people for the right. part. And we can't be auditioning people. We need to be relating. And to realize that partners, it's not about you, you know, here's my script, please read as written. This is about who are you? And, and do you have a, a depth of maturity and willingness to go the distance and to work with me so that the two of us can develop a relationship together? And you're not going to be, my partner's never going to be everything I want him to be in my idealized fairy tale version in my head. And once you realize that and you stop insisting that this person be your everything, uh, it relieves a lot of the pressure. And then you can begin to appreciate what they're actually bringing. Because people bring a lot of gifts to relationship. And if you don't insist that they be the ideal person in your head, you can really start to appreciate that. And then in that light of appreciation, people grow and they relax and they actually start to become their better selves in the light of that appreciation. Oh. And when it's mutual, that's when things can really get lovely. Mm. You know, I was just sitting here thinking and thinking about your practice and what all the good you do for couples. I was just curious, do you have like a great infatuation story or I think it's limerence that you say, limerence that you wanted to share with everybody that just stood out in your mind after all these couples? Well, the one thing that I really enjoy in all my couples work is when a couple comes in and they're they're either really devitalized and disconnected or they're in cycles of conflict that they can't break out of. And I begin to talk to them about a different way of holding relationship. Relationship yeah. is a path of growth. Yeah. And I will tell everybody that comes to work with me that all of the problems in a relationship are solved by growth. Mm. They're not solved by getting the other person to, to apologize or which is, you know, apologies and repair is very important. But this idea, you know, I, I'm just I'm thinking of so many people who have said, well, this person doesn't meet my needs and getting people out of the framework that relationships are about meeting your needs into learning, deepening, cooperating, becoming you know, a, a deeper human and then bringing that self into the relationship and becoming good partners, good role mates. Mm -hmm. But then if you really want to become soulmates, and this is a day and age when so many people are looking for their soulmate yeah. and soulmates are not found. We become soulmates. Mm. The soulmate relationship is developed between two people. It's not like you find this idealized per person and you march off into the sunset together. And that's why the tagline to my book is the path to a soulful mm. relationship. It's not how to find a soulmate. Right. It's the, if you want a soulful relationship, a really deep, amazing connection, you've got to develop as a person. You've got to do the personal and interpersonal work to create the kind of relationship that you both treasure so much that you would never do anything to harm it or destroy right. it. Right. Kind of Which, by the way, is the greatest insurance policy against infidelity. 
oh. is having a relationship that you both value so much, that's so precious to the two of you, that you wouldn't do anything to damage mm. it. When you were talking about that, I, I, you know, I have a rich imagination. I'm sitting here thinking about, I'm sure everybody's seen these videos of these couples that look like war era couples. You know, they're probably in their 80s and they've been dancing together forever. And the way that they just flow together and move together, you think, oh. And then for me, when I watch a couple like that dancing, I think, wow, okay, they went through several wars. They probably had several children. They probably had a life full of not good things, but then a lot of good things. And they still know how to dance together. Yeah, yeah. It's a good metaphor because that's what we need to learn to do is dance together. We need to dance with our difficulties. We need to dance with those dimensions of us that we're, are not our best selves. Um, it is lovely to see couples do that. I'm big on dancing. I love are dancing. Um, actually, a little this is a little secret thing from our relationship, but over the years when Tom has been in a bad mood, um, all I need to do is grab him and start dancing with him. And he'll immediately, just immediately shifts his state. He starts to giggle. And I just learned that, that it's just a way of popping him out of a bad mood is just grab him and start dancing. So, you know, the, it, I think dancing is actually a wonderful thing for couples to do together, particularly um, where you're touching each other, not just you know, like rock and roll dancing, but when you're in each other's arms and you're having to move together and actually work together in a creative way to lead and follow and and to move to music. That's um, it is a space, I think, where you can revisit that idealized place of being in perfect sync. Yeah. Um, hopefully you're not stepping on each other's toes, but uh, you have to learn how to do that even in dancing. Yeah, I, you know, firstly, my husband doesn't like to dance, really, but he'll, I can drag him out on the floor for a wedding, but it's normally me and all my girlfriends out there just like... Well, you have, you have other ways of connecting. Yeah. yeah. Y'all have a genre of dance that you like to do? I mean, is it salsa or... Well, <laughs> so this is another funny story. There's certain kinds of dancing that is not good for us. Okay. Anything that involves uh, a lot of turning... <laughs> <laughs> it's not good because we don't seem to be able to find which direction we're going. Um, I remember we were taking a dance class once and I ended up with a kind of like a sore right shoulder. And I oh. said to Tom, this, this particular dance class, this is not our style of dancing. So we, we just mostly like, you know, foxtrot ballroom dancing and things oh. like that. He's pretty good at the cha-cha. I would love that. Yeah. When I first started my media career years ago in New Orleans, I uh, worked for a big band station, radio station, and they used to have all these big band dances, like probably once a quarter, and everybody in New Orleans would come. And I mean, there were a lot of widowed women or men, and of course, they would all want to dance or dance with me, and it was I learned a lot from them. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of my favorite memories of uh, being with Tom. Tom and I love to go to Paris and yeah. we are going to go again once COVID is over. And um, in Paris, on the steps of the Opera House, on Sunday evenings, somebody brings this really loud boombox and they do tango. 
Oh. It's tango on the, the this platform right in front of the opera house. Wow. And it's absolutely marvelous. It's, you know, the restaurant across the street kind of re-aims some spotlights as the sun sets. And there's all these couples tangoing on on the steps of the opera house in Paris. That's that's one of my favorite dancing memories. Do you guys jump in or is that not one of your dances? Yeah, we did. Uh, also, you know, speaking of dancing selves, because again, the dancing place, the persona, the, the state that people go into when they're uh, like, like a really good tango dancer. There was this one particular uh, gentleman that was there that evening. And I had been with a group of people earlier that day at a coffee at one of the little cafes, um, visiting with a group of uh, Americans and expats. And I found out that he was a tango teacher. And I was not very impressed with him at the breakfast. He was kind of uh, just not very impressive. And then he arrived at that tango dance and I was watching him dance with one of the women and it was so amazing. And I said, I have to dance with that man. So we actually have a little film of me dancing with this tango teacher on the steps of the opera house that Tom was on the side filming because it was the, the person he became as a tango dancer was so different than the person that had been at the coffee that morning. Yeah. And it's to me, that's so fascinating how we have these different dimensions of self mm -hmm. that come out in different settings. And mm -hmm. I talk a lot about that in my first book, Negotiating the Inner Peace Treaty, these uh, this portfolio of inner selves that we, we live into and the archetypal energies because the shift from one inner self to the other inner self can be quite significant. And it's really interesting to think about relationships in that way. Uh, the question of who's matching up with who and which of my inner selves don't get along very well with your inner selves and who gets along really great, who works together mm -hmm. well. Um, it's, it's an interesting way to think about relationships. Yeah, and just talking about this, it percolates in my head that, you know, isn't life really a dance and isn't a relationship really a dance? Yes, it absolutely I, I never is. thought about that till we were just sitting here talking about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we step like, on each other's toes and we kind of have to learn uh, different patterns that work well and, and learn new dances, learn new dances. Wow. Well, I know we're getting close to being out of time. Um, are there any last thoughts that you want to share with everybody about... Anything we've discussed today? Just no, it's just been a wonderful conversation as usual. I enjoy talking to you. We go all sorts of places without knowing where we're going to go. I know. So um, I look forward to our next episode. I do too. I do too. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Heartside Chats. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating. That will help to elevate the podcast so that others can benefit from the content. If you have a relationship question or would like to communicate thoughts and feelings about anything we talked about today, consider sending us an email at heartsidechats at gmail.com. I also have a public Facebook group you can join called Heartside Chats. Thanks for listening.